Dotnet Rocks episode 785 with guest Lucian Wishick. Recorded live Thursday, June 7th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard and we're at the Norwegian Developers Conference in the fishbowl here in uh, day three. And all these sessions we've done already. We've been busy, busy, busy. Just did a session on gesture recognition. It was great. People loved it. I basically walked through how my gesture pack works and I really like it. And your Connect cooperated? We were always worried about lighting, right? Yeah, the light was great. Um, it was a weird problem. And I don't know if it was because I, my laptop went to sleep and then I plugged in the Connect, but I had a bug that seemed like it was in the SDK, but I rebooted and everything was fine. So, you know, that, that old adage still works. Yeah, when in doubt, boot again. Yeah, exactly. All right, better know framework time. What do you got? Well, what I got is uh, I went looking for, you know, Stephen Taub's been on the show a bunch of times. And if you're just getting around to looking at uh, what's new in .NET 4.5 in terms of parallelism, he wrote a blog post in uh, last year that you can get to from tinyurl.com slash parallel 4-5. And I realized that I put a dash in there, but I didn't need to. Anyway, that's uh, parallelprogramming.net. What's new for parallelism in .NET 4.5? It's a really good read. You know, you can read it on your lunch hour. Uh, he goes into some stuff that you might not have been thinking of that we uh, probably didn't even cover in uh, the .NET rocks that we just did with him. So that's good stuff. I just looked at it. It's a lot of stuff, actually. It's going to be quite a bit of reading. The task parallel library being updated. There's so many changes here async in a way and he also talks about reduction and um i thought it was really interesting because we did that that talk with that uh vegetable you remember him leaks yeah ricky leaks but uh his uh his first example uh does a gc collect and then wait for pending finalizers and gc collect again and i'm i'm not sure exactly looking over what the importance of that uh thing but uh He's basically considering, he's using that as a long chain of tasks with one task continuing off of another. Uh, and so he just wants to show how long it takes to to set up that chain and uses that as the example. Just go ahead and collect everything, wait for it all, and then collect again. Because, yeah, that ought to take a while. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. So who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment. Actually, I jumped back into the history a bit. Show 649. In favor of our guest, of course, that was Eric Lippert talking about Project Roslyn. Yeah. So that's uh, March of 2011, so a while back. And the comment I grabbed was from Andrew Cooper. And Andrew says, hey, guys, thanks for the great show. I started teaching myself .NET and C Sharp a little bit over a year ago and listening to .NET Rock shortly thereafter. I've learned heaps from you guys, so keep up the great work. Compiler as a service, which is what Project Roslyn is all about, sounds awesome. 
I've been building an ASP.NET MVC workflow app at work the past couple of months. The other week, I came across a need to generate a custom view model class on the fly so users could add extra data needed at different points in the workflow. I found a couple of solutions on the web using reflection.emit, but they were really ugly, and I didn't want to go there. I ended up with a solution where I've hard-coded the additional view model classes and referred to them by name in the database table that configures the workflow. Ouch. Ouch. Uh, not a great solution, I know, but you know, it does what I need at the moment. Compiler service sounds like it would make this thing a breeze, and I can't wait. Thanks for the great show. That's awesome. I, you know, I just came across a situation where I thought compiler as a service would work really well too. And I thought to myself, you know, I'd never need that. I'm not hardcore enough, but you know, you think about it for a bit and those, those things, when, when it becomes an available tool, Suddenly, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and let's face it. You know you could commit some evil with it, right? Without a doubt. Let's uh, go back to Kate Gregory's adage. It's your foot. <laughs> anyway, and I, I hope uh, uh, Lucian gets a chance to comment on some of this stuff, too, because uh, certainly it's in his ballywick, and I'm looking forward to the show. And, Andrew, thanks so much for your comment. I know you made it a year ago, but it's still good for a mug. So a mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before I introduce Lucian, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and experts such as you hear on our show regularly. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month. They have a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes to their vast library. Pluralsight has a full curriculum, including courses on ASP.NET development, 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming, and just about anything else on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Lucian Wishick. Lucian is on the VB C-Sharp language design team at Microsoft with particular responsibility for VB. Thank you very much. Hi there. It's a pleasure to I, be here. I like VB. I did my talk in VB. He also works on the compiler implementation of the features that get designed and then works on fixing bugs in those implementations. Lucian's been at Microsoft since 04. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, VB doesn't get a lot of attention these days, does it? But I love it. I still I still dream in Visual Basic, and I love XML literals, and it's just a great language. It still gets a huge number of downloads. Yeah. I tried an experiment. I'm giving a talk this afternoon, and I tried to do it in C-sharp, and I'm really worried I'm going to miss semicolons left, <laughs> right, and center. <laughs> Well, you know, Chris Sells used to kid that uh, he can't code in VB. When he does, at the end of every line of code, he puts a, a apostrophe and a semicolon. Just <laughs> crazy. Now, that would be a good use for Project Rosley. And if we could <laughs> write a compiler IDE plugin, which automatically detects those semicolons and strips them off. Right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Or just, uh, or just at, you know, allow semicolons just as syntactic sugar in VB, just for the C sharp developers. Hey, while we were talking about Roslyn, I wonder if your listeners know that a new updated Roslyn CTP was released over the weekend. Yeah. So, um, we're recording this on June 8th. So it's been a while, but, uh, so I'm sure people have heard of it by now, but tell us, tell us about it. Actually, I don't have much more to say. It's, it's just, just new and new it's and improved. It, it washes your whites whiter. Yeah, right. Very good. I'll include a link in the show notes so the people folks can go grab the latest bits. Very good. So, what if what are you working on these days? What's uh, what's really turning your turning your wheels? 
I'm trying to think more about async, right? We did、mm. this feature, and what are the design patterns that should be used for async programming? It's really hard to figure out what design patterns are without at least five years of industry experience under、mm. your belt. We don't have that much. We've got maybe one and a bit years, and we're just learning here and there. Some of what we learnt. Like the need to optimize performance in certain cases, we're able to implement and change between the async CTP that was released two years ago、wow. and the release candidate that's out now. Other things, I think, we're going to have to educate users about. Yeah. So, what are some of the the patterns that、uh, that are emerging that we see? You know, I think one of the biggest things is the message pump, the message loop. Yeah, it's、mm-hmm. kind of there at the background of your WinForms and WPF applications.、Mm-hmm. We've done a good job over the past decade of persuading people that they don't need to worry about it anymore,、right. apart from application dot do events from the olden days. But now I think with async, everyone, everyone who uses the feature has to know what the message pump is, where it's going, and why.、And、the message pump is that thing that it's really a loop that happens on a on the UI thread that. Handles all the messages that come into Windows and dispatches them accordingly. Things like when you move a window in front of another window and then move it away, it invalidates that area that needs to be now drawn, and so the window needs to draw itself in that in that square. Little things like that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So that why do we have to be concerned with the message pump, or at least understand it? Now that we've got async, is it for that UI synchronization issue? It's absolutely for the UI.、Uh, let me tell you, when we were developing async, we got so many bug reports from inside Microsoft saying, "Hey, there's something wrong with the await keyword. When I put await here, my program deadlocks."、Mm. We say, "Well, that's not enough information. In order to diagnose a deadlock, you need to see the complete program, of course." Yeah. So we say, "Can you send us your program?" And we look in it, and they've got an await, sure, and it's deadlocking there, but also they're blocking the UI thread somewhere else.、Oh. Maybe they've got a lock. Maybe they're calling task dot wait. Any、yeah. of the、uh, synchronize blocking synchronization primitives. So were they calling this because usually you do await in an async in an async、uh, routine that is on another thread? So they were calling it on the UI thread. It's common to put await on the UI thread. Like、oh, if、is. you have an async button one click handler, yeah, it will have an await. That's in it. right, because it's what you're calling has to be marked with async. Absolutely. So when you're awaiting it, you're awaiting it on the UI thread, but you're actually waiting for another thread to happen. Or to you're waiting for something to happen. If you're, if I do await for a network download to finish.、Mm. You can't really say which thread the network download is happening. It's probably happening on some threads of control on routers or servers on the internet. So no threads need to be involved in async. But if you have button one click handler which has an await, and if your button two handler blocks until the button one handler is finished,、yeah. bang, deadlock. Yeah, there, there you go. And it sounds like it's the interaction between those two things that's really the problem. Blocking is even, you know. I remember talking to Stephen Tao about this. Remember, he said, "Create, like, create." If you said "create thread," you failed, right? Like that, you you don't want to do that. And blocking is an artifact of that old methodology versus this new methodology of async await. I don't think you ever want to mix those two things. Absolutely, that's good advice. Never mix blocking with await. Okay, and so then you get back to what sh- should they be doing instead of blocking there? 
Right. Or, or put another way, what are the common ways that people block that they don't know they're blocking? Now, there's one subtle one. If you have a task object and you just access its result field, t.result, hmm. you think, ah, oh, that's going to give me a result. But if the task hasn't finished yet, it will block until the result is ready. Nice. Of course. What else would it do, right? And you, because you're basically, you've given an imperative statement there. You said, go get me this. So, well, it's not available yet. So I'll wait for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, the, is that going to end up blocking in a wait somewhere else? Is, it, is that still going to deadlock? It has a high chance of blocking and await yeah. somewhere else, depending, so of course, on the exact interactions of your whole program. And this is what's so hard that yeah. you either need to understand how the entire program works to find the deadlocks, or you have to adopt robust local programming practices yes. like don't put blocks anywhere in your code. Right. Now, that's never going to be possible in general. I mean, typically, we're going to be given a legacy code base that the developer before us and the company did. There are big comments all over saying, do not touch this. And there right. are probably blocking things all over the place. And you're going to have to try to sneak await in there. Is there any way that you can block just by doing another await? I don't understand that question. <laughs> if you're awaiting something, are you block essentially blocking that thread that the await was called on? And a way it will block the logical flow of control through a method. So right. you should always be able to turn blocks into a wait. But then we wrestle with this more difficult thing that every time you use the await keyword in a method, you have to mark the method with the async modifier. Yes. And you have to make it return a task. Yeah. And then its caller has to now await it. And then its caller has to be marked with the async modifier. Right. And its caller has to be marked. And its caller and its caller all sure. the way up to the granddaddy event handler at the top. So, so if the, if it all starts at a button click though, and you're awaiting stuff that's happening all down the chain, that's going to block until everything comes back. It will, every time you have an await, it will Suspend the logical flow of control within that method. I'm will, trying hard yes, not to know, answer your I know, question I know what as you mean. you're asking it. I am throwing you uh, a weird one. Yeah, so it's basically turtles all the way down. It's with this turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also get a sense of the, the viralness of this. That once you start down this path of async await, you end up propagating it throughout the system because it's only the reliable way to work together. Right. Forever will it rule your destiny. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, Lord of the Rings references. <laughs> <laughs> I love the turtles all the way down. That's an obscure reference to an old myth. But, uh, yeah. So, so I guess, you know, for somebody who's never done this before, let's say I've got a long running task and it's all quantified in one function, let's say. And that function is do something long, right? So I mark that with async. Now I have a button. And the button, I want to click on that button, fire off that task, and when that comes back, I want to update, a, let's say, a, a text block. You know, I want to say it's done. So in my button click handler, I call await on lo my long-running function. And then the next line of code sets the text block text to the, you know, whatever the value is that I pull out of that function. When I click that button... It's not going to block the UI thread. And that's the weird thing for most people. You know, I want to step back for a moment before talking about that. 
I think that everyone needs to make a clear separation in their heads between I.O. bound work, like yeah. downloading something off the network, yeah. and CPU bound work. Yeah. Now, when you talked about your method that does a long-running computation, was right. that CPU-bound or was it network-bound? Let's call it CPU-bound. Let's call it CPU-bound. Sure. Now, if we just stick the async keyword on there, people think, I know what async means. It means run it in a background thread. Mm. No, that's not true. Mm. What does async mean? What does the Greek etymology say? It says asynchronos, which means literally not at the same time. All async means is that the result will not be delivered immediately when the function turns, will right. not necessarily come when the function returns. So if you have a long-running piece of work, it has nothing to do inherently with background threads. Right. If ever you want a background thread, you have to create one manually, explicitly. Right. So if you have a long-running computational piece of work in a method and you put the async keyword on, you won't get any difference. It will still run on whichever thread called it. Sure. It will still block your UI if it was long running. The only way that you can take advantage of something about this is, well, if it is compute bound and you're running a client application, mm -hmm. maybe for Windows, maybe for Silverlight, maybe for the phone, then sure, yeah, let's kick off a new thread to do this work mm -hmm. and let's await until that thread is finished. Mm -hmm. That way the UI thread won't be blocked. Right. And stepping back, what we've talked about or what you've asked me is how do I integrate a legacy piece of CPU-bound synchronous code much. into an asynchronous event handler? In other words, how do I wrap sync into async? And the answer is very easy here. There's an API that we introduced called task.run. It takes a delegate. You mm -hmm. can stick your compute-bound work in there. It will create a new thread, and you can await until that thread is finished. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you Telerik reporting. Every business app comes with a requirement for visualizing data. But why bury yourself in coding endless charts and grids when you can add interactive data visualizations quickly and codelessly? And what if you have to export and print these visualizations? Well, there's no need to code any of this. Try Telerik Reporting, the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud apps. It's the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports both relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word, all in a single seamless package. Visit Telerik.com slash reports to download a trial copy. Telerik Reporting. It's fast, easy, and interactive. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So if you're using, if you're calling CPU-bound long-running processes that are churning through data that you're not, you know, is, is just you have already, create a task. Don't use async. Away. Is that what I hear you saying? I think you should await until the task is finished. What you'd actually write down is await task.run of compute-bound delegate. I see. Now, that's only half the truth, right? Hmm. Imagine you're writing a server application. You've got an ASP page, and you want it to scale. What are you going to do there? Are you going to create a task 
a, a, th- a background thread to do the compute bound work? No. For each client request? Is that yeah. what you're saying? No. I it doesn't make so. sense at all. Because no. what you're aiming for in your ASP service stuff is scalability and throughput. Mm. Now, spawning threads to improve UI responsiveness has nothing to do with the server. Yeah. So if you've got compute bound work on a server, don't use task.run. No. Just run it through on the existing thread that the server has given you. Yep. I agree. And I've done a fair bit of server work and, uh, it was in talking with Ken Alstad that uh, I had that epiphany that if you're going to handle a lot of things from you know a lot of clients, do it in a tight loop. You're going to get much better throughput if you use it the, the tightest loop that you possibly can. Absolutely. Than if you give everyone their own thread. Now and it's that ju- very true. There's just one thing I want to say to. There are so many small extra uh, things yeah, with there's async. There's so many caveats. You're right. Yeah. There's some Tony Hall, one of the godfathers of computer science, had this phrase. He said, "Bet on two horses at the same time." What this meant was, kick off two network requests at the same time, and then get whichever one of them comes first. Mm-hmm. So, if your ASP server code wishes to make one request and another request, it would be crazy to do them one after the other. It would make much more sense to say var task1 equals download async of URL1, var task2 equals download async of URL2, and then you can await all until all of them are finished, right. or any to just get the first one. And- Start doing something. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to d- use this kind of thing for is just to improve time to first byte. In other words, the num- number of milliseconds before the ASP server starts giving data back to the user. And generally, I've found where ASP.NET gets in trouble at high scale is you're running low on threads anyway. So kicking off more threads is just going to make the problem worse. Absolutely. One other place where ASP gets in trouble is garbage collection. Mm-hmm. Now, here we have mixed messages. Because the garbage collection for async methods is not as beautiful as the garbage collection for regular methods, right? You have a regular method. It's all got local variables. The JIT knows full well that once the method finishes, hey, all of the local variables are out of scope. For an async method, well, it creates internally, it creates a class, this display class, we call it. And all of the local variables are lifted into fields of this display class. When exactly are they going to be collected by the JIT? Well, we did our best to make it good for the JIT, but it's never going to be as good as local methods. Hmm. Don't go making async methods willy-nilly. Just do them carefully where you need them. Well, you get into this old problem of not everything's a, ha- a nail, right? Like you figured out the async hammer, you don't punch everything down. Figure out only where you really are going to make a difference with it. Absolutely. Are there any cases, uh, use cases where uh, it does make sense to create a thread in a in an ASP.NET server app or create a task, let's say. We don't use threads anymore. I can't think of any. Yeah. Nope. Well, well unless you you've got legacy code that is blocking and you really need to run it off Well, separately. we get back to that I.O. bound, right? I've got 10 database requests I need to make, so I'm going to spin them all off as async so I can launch them all simultaneously and bring them back in whatever order they come back in. Yeah. But that's not necessarily spawning threads. That's just executing asynchronously. Absolutely. Yeah. The fact that there might be other threads involved is almost secondary to the point. Right. And you've captured the most important thing. I call it zero threaded asynchrony. Mm -hmm. 
meaning that you can use the async keyword all you like. You can have a weights all over the code, and it's possible to do this without creating any more threads beyond what the operating system provides. That is a very, very good point and something that I really hadn't considered because you're right. Most people think when I use async await, there's a thread involved, but you're saying no. Yeah, now... We're, we're having to educate people quite hard on this. When yeah. we did usability studies with the async keyword, we put async. We think async was a good keyword. Mm. We asked people, what does it mean? 70% of them said, oh, async, doesn't that mean background thread? Mm. Well, we're telling them very clearly, no. And you might wonder, why did we choose such a dumb word if everyone thinks it means something different? Yeah. And I'll tell you what the answer is. We designed this feature for the long haul. We thought, what will programmers be happy having a mental model about in three years? And what will they be happy coding in their day-to-day life three years from now, two years from now, one year from now? We think that by reorienting the mental models about what asynchrony is, we're doing them a favor. Well, I think you call it async because that's actually what it is. The fact that they misunderstand that to consider it you know, parallel execution or, or uh, multi-threaded execution, you can fix that. They just need to be educated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, stick with the name because it's the right name. Absolutely. Uh, we're running into more troubles. I mean, there are no university classes on the async feature. Yeah, that's true. Of course, there are <laughs> university classes out of the years on object-oriented and subroutines and procedures. And threading, Everyone yeah. knows that. Right. But async is completely new. And what research there is on async, what work there is, they do use it in the wrong sense of the word, I yeah. think, in universities. <laughs> so we're going to have to have training materials, universities. I'm looking forward to seeing what will happen with this three yeah. years down the you line. You have to cre- correct all this documentation. They've been abusing the word. Absolutely. Oh, that's an interesting problem to have, but I'm, I mean, it is the right word. So there may be another thread involved, but that thread may be part of, thread may already exist. Yeah, um, I can tell you two threads that already exist for sure. One is yeah. called the UI thread, sure. which of course WinForms creates yeah, for you. Yeah. There's another thread that .NET creates, the IO completion port thread. And whenever a network packet arrives back over the internet, mm-hmm. some code has to execute it. It runs on this IO completion port thread. Mm. And mostly all that does is fire off whatever completed event handler or resumes whatever await was waiting on. Right. And so are there circumstances where uh, async await will end up spinning up more threads? I mean, I don't think we could do it explicitly, but does it happen naturally? No, and this was a really important point. Hmm. We think threads are a serious business. I mean, one megabyte reserved stack space, lots of operating system overhead. We don't want that to happen implicitly ever. We don't want the language keywords to create a new thread implicitly unless, unless you, create a task. you explicitly have something which has new thread or task.run or right. something like that. But, so now, let me go on from that. Does task.run mean start a new thread every time? It does. Okay. Although I wish to clarify something else in people's minds. When we talk about task in .NET 4, people said, I know what a task is. It represents a piece of work on the thread pool. 
That's no, not really true no. anymore, is it? What a task is, it's a promise. It's a future. Mm-hmm. It's a promise of a result that will be delivered at some stage in the future. How will it be delivered? Well, maybe there's a background thread working on it. Maybe there's a network request outstanding that's working on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a server out in some different country working on it yeah. to give you back. It's an abstraction over all of that. Over all of those. And lots of those don't involve any extra threads on your program. Interesting point, yeah. Wait, and we, I mean, we pounded on the whole idea of async around CPU-bound workloads. What about async around I/O-bound workloads? That's where it shines. Actually, you mm. know where it shines best. We've talked about these heterogeneous, uh, long-running tasks, either I/O-bound or CPU-bound. Async kind of unifies them together. Task unifies them together. Mm. So the task type is a common abstraction for all of the different kinds of long-running tasks, wherever they might happen to be. Mm-hmm. And the task type, this is the beautiful thing about the task type, is it's compositional. That mean, What does compositional mean? It means I can build bigger building blocks or bigger pieces of glue that tie together in interesting ways. Yeah. I can write combinators like task.whenall or task.whenany. Yeah. Or I could write, run this task and retry it several times if I don't get an answer within Mm. a certain point. Mm. All of these high-level functionalities are open up by task. Nice. Now, async is compositional in its own way. Let's think what programmers used to have to do. They used to have to use callbacks all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the asynchronous model in .NET was based on callbacks. Let's call it the event asynchronous pattern just to distinguish it from what we're doing now. Sure. The event asynchronous pattern... It had callbacks, and callbacks don't compose within the language. If any of you have tried to do an event-based callback Mm. wrapped in a while loop, you'll know, oh, I don't know how to do that. If you tried wrapping... I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that. You just casually threw that out there, wrapped in a while loop. Well, what Uh, you're going to have to do... What do you mean, exactly? You're going to have to create a lambda... Well, let's... Talk about it in async terms first. I want okay. to do while B, then inside the curly braces, await download string async. Mm-hmm. That's the program I'm writing. Okay. Now, if I had to do an event-based version of that, oh, then yeah. inside the while no loop, way. it would have to sign up a continuation. And that continuation lambda would have to finish the while loop. You can't do that, actually. You can't use the while construct around an event asynchronous in the pattern. Loop. Yeah. You can't use a try-catch block around event asynchronous pattern. In fact, you have to duplicate your try-catch handling all over the place. Hmm. Even just doing a simple if-then statement followed by something else, you have to duplicate the stuff that's followed by. Event-based asynchronous pattern does not compose with any other part of the language. So what we've done with the async keyword and the await keyword is we've made something that composes with the rest of the language. Sure, and you can program it just like you would program a a synchronous block of code. That's really the beauty of it for me, is that you've you've eliminated all of that goo that tore us away from the natural way we'd like to program. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, Carl. Yeah? I think it's that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to one lucky winner of the .NET Rocks fan club. And today's winner is Dan Peasens. Dan, congratulations. You are the winner today. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Dan. He gets a $2,000 value here, the Telerik Ultimate Collections, everything that they do. And uh, they give away one through us 
every show. And uh, we give away stuff all the time on every show. We give away tickets to conferences. Sometimes we give away other products from other sponsors. And every December, we're going to give away five grand, five large worth of uh, technology handpicked by us. With all this parallel conversation, your 64-bit, 64 64-processor 64 machine makes perfect sense. I want to write it. I want to give away a 64-core machine. Yes. All right, he sold me so far, but it's still a couple of months away, and who knows what's going to happen in hardware in that time. That's right. But if you want to get in on it, just go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button that's in the upper right-hand corner, and sign up. It's free, and it's easy. So, where are we headed with Async Await? Now that we have this great composable thing uh, that's closer to our language, that we don't have to... A, you know, work around the event model. Um, we're trying to determine what patterns are evolving, what programming patterns. It's so new. Uh, we've covered a couple of them. Where do you see this going? And I want to talk about one pattern that I think will become really important, but I don't think people have answered yet properly. Let's start with a concrete example, and then I'll generalize it. Imagine you've got a program, it's got a button, you click the button, it calls a library routine, which does something, it's got a timeout of five seconds, but that library routine calls a lower level library routine, which has a timeout of 20 seconds mm. in a while loop, and it does three of them, it does three retries, That's crazy. and under that it's got a timeout of what, 20 milliseconds underneath, I don't know what, but it's clear that timeouts cannot be modularized and cannot be abstracted away. Right. The timeouts have Absolutely. to walk the entire stack top right. to bottom. That's right. Now, where's that going to lead us? Let's think of the distributed world. Let's think Azure. Okay. Azure. Azure. <laughs> well, that's the Canadian pronunciation, Azure. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> All right. Let's think Azure. We're talking about distributed scalable systems. We're right. talking about fallible systems where... I don't know. What are the different failure modes? Maybe a message will fail mm -hmm. to be delivered. Maybe a hard disk on one of the compute nodes will just freeze because the disk controller is two years old and that's what disk controllers do. And the machine gets out of action for, what, two minutes until it spontaneously reboots? Who knows what's happened in that time? What are you going to do for the correctness of your distributed algorithms? How are you going to program these? Now, I have a good example of this. I bet... Everyone knows the story of Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. star-crossed lovers in Verona. Yeah. They were a distributed protocol, right? One yep. of them in one household, the Montagues, the other in the Capulets. Classic And they exam. only had an unreliable messaging layer between them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> they were transferring messages by this monk, yeah. and they came up with a protocol for a rendezvous between them. Mm -hmm. They said, we're going right. to do this meet-up in the graveyard in the yep. following state, but the message got lost. Romeo didn't hear the full details. Juliet took the sleeping draft, lay in the tomb. Romeo came. He thought she was dead. He and killed himself. And you know, himself. that could either be a tragedy like Romeo and Juliet or a seriously funny comedy. I mean, <laughs> the misinterpretation of intent is the basis for a comedy and tragedy. Well, that's uh, Midsummer's Night Dream if we're going to stay with Sh Shakespeare. Yeah, or if you want 70s sitcoms, Three's Company <laughs> or 80s sitcoms, I should say. And it's also the basis of where does your code go wrong when you 
put it onto the cloud or mm-hmm. when you put it onto any distributed system, how are you going to work around this? You think, well, I know what. I could wrap up my unreliable messaging layer mm-hmm. into something reliable. doesn't exist. That's a pipe dream. There's a, a result right. from theoretical computer science. Every distributed protocol has a window of vulnerability. Sure. The question is only if you know if you failed or not. Right? Absolutely. You, you can't avoid failure. Can you tolerate, you know, know that you actually failed to have some chance to recover? Yeah. And so, what are we going to do? Well, the Azure answer, part of the Azure answer is very straightforward. Always do your operations idempotent on the message queue. Mm-hmm. Idempotent means if it accidentally gets done twice, then it doesn't matter. It just does the same as doing it right. once. You'd rather do it more than not at all. Absolutely. And you deal with the duplication rather than deal with a loss. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the second part of the story is, when we come to write higher-level APIs in Azure, we're not going to write them as if they look reliable all of the time. We are always, I believe, now everyone is going to tell me what's the mm-hmm. great way to program in the next few years, but I believe the key way to program this is every API you write, every pattern you write, has to expose that window of vulnerability to the programmer very clearly, very mm-hmm. explicitly, so that the programmer always knows where it is. Sure. Yeah, sure. And that way, it can, you can walk the stack. You can get your timeout values all the way up. Absolutely. All the way up the chain, all of turtles. <laughs> <laughs> you get to see every turtle? Yeah. All right. So... Well, how do you describe the pattern ultimately? Is it just going to be propagating that information forward? I mean, it seems like a discoverability interface, really. Or an encapsulation all the way up the chain. I would love to know how to write that pattern. Yeah. I haven't figured out what it is. I'm sure it's there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about stuff like Service Bus as being part of the creating reliability or at least you know, creating notification of failure. There's techniques there. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it... And it it gets into this idea of composability that I, you want to have that series of different calls with the different sets of rules around them. And if you, rather than having them in a serial stack, you have them composed, maybe they have an execution order they have to follow, but still essentially asynchronous, but at least you know what each piece is. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Mm, I still don't know how to write it, but you know, <laughs> I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> so that's one issue that we have to avoid. I'm, I'm, there must be millions of others. I mean, you know, anytime you have a new technology shift like this, there's, there's cans of worms that get opened. Um, you've probably done a lot of coding against a, a sync and a wait. What are some of the other gotchas that we can run into? Yeah. One of the gotchas, and it actually echoes the same theme of telling the consumer of your API the truth, right? Yeah. What we saw some people doing was they had a compute bound API maybe say fast Fourier transform, they think, hey, async is the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. In addition to my compute FFT function, I should write compute FFT async. Hmm. How will I implement it? Well, I'll just spawn a new thread. It will do task.run of the underlying compute bound thing. And that way, consumers of my API can use either the sync version or the async version. Boy, that's a mistake. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Well, sure, because can a consumer just spin up their own tasks and call whatever they want on exactly. it if they want to? And it should be up to the consumer what they're going to do. If you're going to have yeah, this exactly. heavyweight thing of spawning up a thread, the consumer has to be in control of it. Has to have, yeah, you know, know that that's happening and have some ability to suppress it or 
decide to do it or not. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course, it takes the burden off of a component vendor, you know, or a tool provider to not have to duplicate every version of every method that they expose. Absolutely. Now, yeah. that's another passion we find. Let's suppose they did have the ability to truly, honestly make their entire API surface async, mm -hmm. not in this cheating way with task.run, right. but really by putting the lower-level callbacks. Yeah. Should they do this? Should they make every single one? Probably not. I mean, async does involve an overhead for right. sure. I can tell you the numbers. The raw overhead for an async method, if the body of the async method is empty, if it just has a, a pointless await and yeah, does right. nothing else, overhead is about three times a regular method invocation. Wow. Now, Jeez. of course, when you've got the actual work inside it, that yeah. will shadow, because overhead for a method invocation is small. That's right, yeah. And I don't want your listeners to start micro-optimizing away. Mm -hmm. I just want them to use async judiciously. Now, if they've made the entire API really chatty, really fine-grained async, that probably won't be the right answer either. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Here's a scenario for you. Let's say I've got a, a for loop in my code, and this is a real problem. This is a problem that comes right out of Gesture Pack. Let's say um, my for loop goes through all of the gestures that my consumer has defined that they want to recognize. Yeah. So I have a list of gestures, and that list could contain five gestures or one gesture, or it could contain thousands of gestures. At what point do I start to think about using a parallel for? Should I use it right off the go? And am I going to incur any overhead when I have one gesture or five gestures? That, you know, overhead goes away, obviously, the more that I have. But I, I, I'm concerned about should I just should I use it? Should I not use it? Or should I try to determine if I should use it based on the number? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, as for the answer, <laughs> I wish Stephen Taub were here. He yeah. knows everything I'm, about this. I'm, I'm waiting for the it depends, actually. I'm sure. Well, it but depends on what Steve would say. What? <laughs> What I do remember is that Parallel.4 does have smarts. It, okay. it has intelligence to know how much to do, but I don't know how much intelligence it has. Well, you gotta, I guess you also got to assess what the cost of that overhead actually is to you. You know, in your, your particular scenario where you're talking about you have many gestures and you're trying to evaluate them, the cost when you have few gestures is probably so low, even if it is invoke some overhead, it's, it's a few fractions of a second. Who cares? That's true. Yeah, it may be. Because if you think about in this case, I've got a 30th of a second to complete my entire calculation. So if the number of gestures is low, the overhead isn't going to matter that much. But as it gets higher, well, you know, it's just going to take some testing, I think, is what comes that, down. That 30th of a second comes from the frame rate of Connect. Yeah, that's right. The Connect gives you skeleton data 30 times a second. 
yeah, I'd be tempted to just do it because it doesn't feel like it's that much overhead, right? And and as you said, these things have smarts that they don't have a lot of work to do. They sort of lighten their own load. But, you know, there is a reason why it's parallel dot four and not just four. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, if if there was no difference, then all loops should be parallel. Hey, there's a pretty big correctness difference. If you haven't made totally sure that the body is thread safe. Oh, it's true. That's true. Yeah, you don't know what they're necessarily calling into that uh, parallelizing would be really quite bad. You know, in the language design team, we've been trying so hard to think how can the compiler automatically detect parallelism. Mm -hmm. There are lots of smart techniques in academia. You... Uh, oh, there was one beautiful, beautiful technique. A colleague of mine, Bill Zisimopoulos, implemented it a few years ago based on the academic PhD theses that were around there. They create a points-to graph. That is, the compiler looks at your code, mm-hmm. and it figures out at compile time what will all possible runtime shapes of the heap be. Hmm. If it can figure out that at runtime this pointer here or this reference here will never point to the same thing as this other reference here if it knows they're completely disjoint. Right. And that's enough for it to know that it can automatically parallelize stuff. Parallelism only breaks down when two things are trying to use the same piece of memory, essentially. Absolutely. Right. So if you can actually go and assess all of that, and you can find no intersection points in shared memory, you've got an opportunity to parallelize. Yeah. Parallelism and state don't match. Mm. So what's the pitfall to that? Why are we doing that? That sounds brilliant. I think there are a few pitfalls. First, you said state and parallelism don't mix. Mm -hmm. It's really mutable state and parallelism that don't match. If we went to read only data structures, and sure, we could mix them willy-nilly. We have one state. Exactly. And and this idea went to the core of the Roslyn APIs, Mm. you know, because, well, the idea here is that the Roslyn APIs expose the parse trees or the symbol table of the code. And you can imagine that each keystroke that the user does would mutate the parse tree. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've written a plugin for Roslyn that walks the parse tree, would you have to write a plugin that's resilient against the parse tree being modified under its feet? Of course. No, that would be a disaster I mean, if everyone hard. had to write that. Yeah. So. What Roslyn does is it makes read-only parse trees that are a snapshot of the time that you got them. Now, that could be very expensive to implement them. What's a parse tree? A parse tree. I'm sorry. A parse tree is... It's the syntax tree. It okay. It represents... If, say you've got a method, void f, which takes some parameters and has a body, and the parse tree shows this is a method call. And it says the method's name is F. This is its gotcha. body. You can walk its contents. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get back to this fairly difficult problem of you, you've got to take a snapshot on a regular basis to sort of give some consistency to the tools that are actually parse, going through the parse tree, which means also means they're working without a date data. Stuff's changing behind it. Yeah. So what we do is we give to clients of Roslyn an immutable snapshot. Mm-hmm. That way they're safe. They can walk it safely. They can finish their execution knowing it's not going to change. But when they go and re-request it, it's entirely entirely possible it'll be different. Absolutely, okay. yeah. And so it's almost an ongoing thing, if depending on what your role is 
and walk you through that parse tree as to what you want to do. Yeah. But you know, when you got 64 cores, <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. Yeah, just, you know, we don't think about the intersection of Rosalind and all of these concepts around parallelism. There's a huge overlap, and we've had so many bug reports on the async feature hmm. from within the Visual Studio team saying, hey, this task doesn't work how I expected. Right. You well, know, you talk about eating your own dog food, right? You're now trying to build against this technology you've built. Absolutely. 200 milliseconds. Hmm. Do you know what 200 milliseconds is? That's the time when our user, user experience folks tell us, the users start getting irritated with the pause. They start noticing <laughs> the pause. Wow. So, Perf Watson, uh, this used to be a download for Visual Studio 2010 that you can download. Mm -hmm. It was built into the uh, beta of Visual Studio. I think it's in the release candidate. What this does is that if ever Visual Studio has hanged for more than 200 milliseconds, it figures out everything that was going on at this point, and with your permission, it sends a message to Microsoft, describing mm -hmm. what exactly was the state. Nice. Well, all of these gets automatically put into buckets. They get automatically filed as bug reports on the relevant team. And we look at what was wrong with our code that caused this hang. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the answer is implement our algorithms more efficiently, use less memory. Right. Sometimes the answer is make it async. Make it async and create a thread or use the background thread to right. do the work just to make the user interface more responsive. Well, and that's always been the thing. Keep the UI functioning. Yeah. The uh, Metro, uh, .NET 4.5 Metro applications in the API, there was a, uh, a mandate, I believe, fifth of 50 milliseconds that if an API took more than 50 milliseconds, it must be async. That's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. We were debating what what metric should we have when we give .NET programmers the guidance of whether their method should be async or not. Yeah. We couldn't come up with a good one, you know? 50 milliseconds, does that Seems tie arbitrary. It? Yeah, it ties it pretty closely to a particular generation of hardware, I think, a particular era of computing. Maybe what's appropriate for a library might be different for a thing. Maybe what's appropriate for a server might be different for a client. We haven't actually figured that out. 50 milliseconds yeah. was pretty good for user responsiveness yeah. in a client device in today's right. market. Right, right, right. Certainly. I just I wanted to go back, actually. This idea of automatically parallelizing stuff, mm. it came from an era when people were looking at 64 cores, right. when people were looking at multi-core machines and they were running around like headless chickens thinking, mm. panic, 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 I need to machines. paralyze my entire program to right. make it take advantage of it. Boy, you said earlier is an important insight that if you've got only a small amount of data, you don't benefit from running it on multiple cores. Sure. It's only if you've got a large, a huge amount of data that you get benefit from running on multiple cores. Mm hmm I don't know what huge is, but it's somewhere up there. Yeah, huge is relative, too, right? Absolutely. These things vary. But I, I think the other part of this was just this recognition that most developers, when responsible for threading, sort of break down past the UI thread one or two background threads. Or through parallel.4 by using mm -hmm. a thread pool to automatically ramp up. Or yeah. parallel link. I love parallel link. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I believe, I believe that for most business programs that we write, most client programs that we write mm -hmm. to, we don't need to parallelize all of our program. We can mm -hmm. make do 
just with Parallel 4 and P-Link for the embarrassingly parallel stuff. Right. And we can make do without parallel stuff for the vast bulk of it, as long as we keep heavy work off the UI thread. Yeah, keep the I.O. bound stuff off that thread, keep the CPU bound stuff off that thread, just spin it off and keep the UI responsive. But otherwise, it's usually not going to add up to that many Actually, threads. Actually, I just want to call you on that. You said mm-hmm. keep the CPU bound off the UI thread. That's true. Mm-hmm. You also said keep the I.O. bound off the UI thread. Right. Now, huh, this is this is subtle. Question. If I kick off a network request, right. how much work am I doing to kick off a network request? Mm, not very much. Answer nothing. Milliseconds. Right. I can kick off something on the UI thread. If I want to receive a network response and say update a label to say that it's done. Right. How much work does that take? Not a lot. Not a lot. So you could do that on the UI well, thread I too. I, fall, I think I've fallen in my own trap here. I'm mixing up multi-threadedness and asynchrony. Absolutely. I don't want the execution path to wait for that I.O. request, but I don't actually need it on its own thread. No. So you could just use the await keyword. Mm-hmm. Good enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, Lucian, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been a great, uh, great almost hour. And uh, thanks again. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you. It's been you. an eye-opener and a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a